If you don't have a Bible, you're more than welcome to open up one that is in front of you, in the black pew, uh, right in front of you. I think it's on page 843. And from there, Jesus arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house, and he did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not be hidden. And immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him, and she came and fell down at his feet. Now this particular woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, but she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And Jesus said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And Jesus said to her for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in the bed and the demon was gone. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, your word is true and beautiful. And at times it's hard. And yet it is inspired by your spirit and it's here for us to mine and dig and search and seek wisdom and to believe. And so I pray that you, by your spirit, the same spirit who carried Mark along to write this, the same spirit who carried Jesus along to say this, the same spirit who carried the woman to Jesus to hear this, I pray that you, Holy Spirit, would be our teacher this morning. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. There's a man by the name of Will Fry, and he has a 1970s model Oldsmobile. And uh, in January of this year, uh, he started to look for uh, an engine uh, because his older engine and an older car obviously died. And he searched the classifieds, and he found that another man who was actually in Iowa was selling a 70s model Oldsmobile that was very much like his own. Uh, And so the man who listed it, it was an an all-or-nothing deal. He wouldn't necessarily scrap it out for the engine alone. And so Will had to purchase the entire car. Upon getting the car to his own garage, uh, he opened up the, uh, the hood and started to clean it and to blow air in it, to uh, get ready to take the engine out of that car and to put in his own. And as he was blowing the engine off and cleaning it, he kept hearing different metal pieces kind of fall beneath the car. And so he just kept blowing, kept cleaning. And once he cleaned the entire engine up, he pushed the car back and beneath the car, there was just a lot of metal, screws, nuts, bolts, you name it. Uh, But there was something that caught his attention that was filled with sludge and gunk, and he picked it up, and it was a piece of metal, but it it appeared to be a ring. And so he went inside, and he cleaned it off, and and it's true. It it was a wedding ring. And so he reached out to the original owner, who was a a guy by the name of Ray Shoemaker, who uh, is 93. So this happened this year. Ray is 93. And he asked him, he says, hey, did you lose a ring by chance? And in Ray's mind, he's thinking, there is no way you found my wedding ring. Ray actually lost his ring 45 years ago. 
And for 45 years, that wedding ring had been sitting uh, in and under that engine of the car. Now think about that. Miles of driving, mechanic shop, sitting outside, rusting away, and there it was, his wedding ring that he lost months after being married. And it was precious because uh, Ray's wife recently passed of breast cancer. And so this idea of getting this ring back that his wife had purchased some 45 years ago, still intact, uh, you could say that he was pleasantly surprised, pleasantly surprised to find something so precious, so meaningful, where he least expected it. I think that's a healthy frame for looking at our passage this morning, that if you're reading Mark's gospel, that we really ought to be surprised that we actually find faith in this passage. Matter of fact, in Matthew's account, Matthew 15, Jesus makes the statement to this woman. He says, great is your faith. So whatever we want to say about the passage, what it's really about is, is faith. And I think what Mark is doing is combining these two ideas to help us think about faith. And this is this aspect of faith being surprising. When you think about faith and try to unpack it, would you say that surprised uh, or being surprised by its presence uh, fit sort of in the same idea? I think Mark would have us create that category in our mind that faith should indeed be surprising to God's people. The first thing Mark teaches us in this passage is this surprising appearance of faith. So if you're taking notes, we got four points. Uh, the first two will be a little longer, and the last two will be a little shorter. Uh, the first two, uh, the first one, the surprising appearance of faith. Now, if you were with us last week, then you know where Mark was, I mean, where Jesus was. Jesus was in the town of Gennesaret or Gennesaret, depending on how you want to pronounce it. And remember, I told you, the Pharisees had traveled 100 miles north from Jerusalem to where Jesus was, because Jesus seemed to be breaking all of their man-made traditions, right? When his disciples were picking grain on the Sabbath, they attacked Jesus. When Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath, they attacked Jesus. When Jesus was doing exorcisms, the scribes attacked Jesus, saying that he is doing this by the power of Satan, right? And so when Jesus was sitting with sinners and tax collectors, they came and asked Jesus, why are you hanging out with those unclean people? And what was Jesus' response? The healthy people don't need a doctor, but the sick people do. I came to call the sick. And so Jesus has been having this confrontation with the religious leaders all in Mark's gospel. And last week, there was another confrontation around what makes us unclean. And so Jesus' disciples were eating, they were not washing their hands, and the Pharisees got wind of it and says, hey, why do your disciples do what is unclean and wrong? Why do they not obey the tradition of the elders? And then what did Jesus say? He says, it's not what makes you unclean. It's not outside. What makes you unclean is inside, and there's a filth in you that you can't wash off with water. So stop coming up with man-made traditions that take you away from your need for a deeper cleansing that you will not find elsewhere but me. Now, it makes perfect sense that Jesus just 
has this disagreement with them in Genesaret over what's unclean and clean. And did you catch where Jesus went in our passage? And from there, where is the from there? The from there is in, in, in Genesaret. He arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And did you notice he met a woman whose daughter, look, look at it with me, right there in verse 25, whose daughter had an unclean spirit. I think that that's the scene. Jesus is actually going from a debate over what makes us clean and unclean. And he says, if you really want me to show you, he actually goes into an unclean land with unclean people. Now, what do we know about Tyre and Sidon? Nate, will you bring that graphic up for me? So Jesus was with his disciples here, and then he leaves there. And you can see that boundary marker right there. Notice what this map by Dr. Currit, who was one of my Old Testament professors at RTS, notice what he, what, how they divide this land. He's saying, hey, this is a boundary marker. This land right here, this is Jewish territory. Over here, this is Gentile territory. All right, thank you, Nate. So what Jesus is doing, he's leaving. Now, why is this important to know Tyre and Sidon? And I think geography matters. Because if you read your Old Testament, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Joel, you will read this tension and judgment against them. I'll read from one passage in Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel says, son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, because you are proud and have said, I am a God, yet you are not God, but a man. I will bring foreigners upon you, ruthless nations, and they shall draw sword against your beauty. They shall thrust you down into the pit and you will die. And then he says, son of man, set your face also against Sidon, and I will execute my judgments against her and send pestilence after her and blood into her streets. And so did you catch the tone of Ezekiel 28? He's talking about these two cities. Now, now why is God wanting to judge these two cities? Here's why. When David and Solomon started to build the temple, do you know where they got their cypress and their cedar from? They got it from Tyre, right? And so they were in this alliance with Israel where, where they made these deals. Hey, we have crops, we have land, and, 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 and let's trade crops. Let us give you some of what we have so that we can get your wood, so that we can build our temple. So they had this alliance where they were treating Israel with favor and goodness. And then something happened. Ahab had a wife whose name was Jezebel. Jezebel's father, right? This is in the Bible. Jezebel's, uh, in 1 Kings 16, uh, 31, Jezebel's father was the king of Tyre. And so somehow this wealthy, good, powerful, fortified nation that was prosperous, that was working in favor of Israel, somehow along the way they crossed Israel. And so they became so wealthy and, and, and so prideful that they started to cut deals with Assyrians and the Babylonians. And so the Lord gets wind of this. And he says, because you are now a friend to my enemies, I am now an enemy to you. And I will wipe you both away. And the Lord did it. 
Nebuchadnezzar came, and for 13 years he warred against these cities. Alexander the Great came in 332 BC, and he warred against this city. And Jesus is even aware of the tension. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazan, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes, but it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. So think about this. There's this tension there because they had made themselves enemies to the Lord. And the Lord says, I will repay you. And so the fact that Jesus leaves Genesaret and goes into Tyre and Sidon, we ought to be looking at this with our mouths wide open Oh my gosh, what is about to happen here? And if you were a Jew and you were hearing Jesus going into this land, you would think that he is going into the land for judgment. You would think that he's the king that's about to really lay these cities to waste. And that's not what he does. He finds faith there. And then it's the woman. And notice what Mark, first of all, it's a woman. So we're talking strikes against this lady. First, she's a woman which in Jesus' day, I won't get into all of it, the rabbi, this was not Jesus' posture, right? This was kind of the rabbis and how they would have viewed women. Jesus dignifies women. Jesus disciples women. Jesus heals women. Jesus teaches women. Jesus lets women follow him. And so Jesus' posture towards women, it's, it's equality and beauty and value. But in his day, what he was doing was against the grain. And so she's walking through the door in a room full of his disciples. She has a strike against her. And it's not just that she's a woman. Notice what Mark says, she's a Gentile. And it's not just that she's a Gentile, which probably meant she was not a God-fearer. Mark actually says she was Syrophoenician by birth. Now, why does he give those two tags, right? Why does he appeal to her being a Gentile, which probably means she was not a God-fearer, and she was culturally a Syrophoenician, and she had a woman, a, a daughter who had an unclean spirit. Now, I don't know about you, but I know when people get sick in our household, the first thing that my wife does is she does this right here, kind of touches them on the head and touches them on the ear and touches them around the neck. And, you know, so we have every reason to believe that this woman has probably touched her daughter who's possessed by an unclean spirit. And now she's in the presence of Jesus. And did you notice what Jesus says about this woman? He says, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And Matthew 15, Matthew, which is a sister verse to this, sister passage, Matthew actually says, great is your faith. You see the contrast? It's surprising that faith is showing up in this land in this woman, and yet it does. Nate, next. I don't know if you guys have heard of Death Valley, but this is Death Valley. It's in Southern California, and it looks like that, dry. 
and dead and vast and hot. This is the driest place in our country. This is the hottest place in our country. Temperatures exceed 134 degrees Fahrenheit. The ground temperature can get up to 201 degrees Fahrenheit. If you're wearing shoes, the shoes you have on right now, they will melt in some parts of Death Valley. And on the surface, it looks that there's no life there. What can live there? Next slide. What can live there? Next slide. What can live there? Here's what we know about Death Valley. There's a phenomenon called the super bloom, and it happens roughly once a decade. And you can see it from space that Death Valley turns into a rainbow of color. Next slide. Yellow and purple wildflowers bloom. Next slide. They bloom. Next slide. They bloom. Thank you, Nate. Now, why am I showing you these pictures and these images? You get it, right? We look at that place and we see hot and dry and nothing good can grow there. And God says, no, there'll be life there. Life can bloom. Faith can bloom where we least expect it. I think that is what Mark is trying to show us. Who do you know right now that you're looking at their life, you're looking at the choices they've made, you're looking at situations that they're in, and you are saying in your soul, there is no good coming out of this. There is no way that person in this situation going through these things who made these choices, there is no way in the world that faith can bloom there. And Mark says, I will up you on that. Mark says, do not discount what God can do. Do not judged by what you see. And I can remember this vividly. I remember coming to the Lord and I can remember like leaving Best Buy, getting a remote start, putting on, put on my car, having a pocket full of money and seeing this dude like on the corner with a sign out. And I'm coming up this road, dude got a sign and I've seen kind of his face kind of checking people out goals. I mean, just in my mind, I'm writing this dude off. This dude is hustling, right? He is hustling, trying to hit up folks coming from the mall and all dude want is money and he's trying to get over. And so I'm feeling self-righteous. And so I, I pull over to his lane and I reach in my pocket to give dude some money thinking I'm going to help dude out. And dude looks at me. He says, playboy, I don't want your money. He says, Jesus wants your soul. That's exactly what it did to me. <laughs> it was just like one of those little darts that the Lord kind of shoots at you. 
you look at the outside, and I'm looking at this dude, and I'm sizing this dude up, and I'm thinking, ain't nothing good dwelling there. And this dude looked at me and said, dude, you lost, and Jesus will save you. How many of you have had those kind of experiences? Were you judged by externals? You look at your kids and you see where your kids are and you doubt there is no way in the world that person is going to believe. You look at people in culture and society and they seem to be so far gone. You look at situations that people put themselves into by their own choices and we write them off and we assume there are dry hearts there that no one or nothing can break through and that God says now live life can bloom, faith can bloom in places that we don't think. And I think that's what Mark is saying, that we should anticipate being surprised by faith that shows up. And this might be you this morning. You might be in a hard place based on your actions, your consequences, and you might be denying there is nothing good that can happen in me. And I'm here to tell you that that is not the truth. The Lord can go in those hard and dry places and bring life. It's the first thing Mark teaches us. The second thing we see is that there are some surprising components of faith. Surprising components of faith. And the first one is suffering. Look, I don't know if you've ever tried to kind of teach through Mark. But I'm going to let the cat out of the bag, right? It's kind of hard. And, and, and here's why. I'm not, I'm not trying to get a pass or anything, but here's why. The, the, the cynic in me, right, the, it just feels really redundant. You meet a dude who can't walk, and he comes to find Jesus, and all of a sudden the dude is walking, Right? You meet a man who has a sick daughter. He comes to find Jesus, and now all of a sudden the daughter is healed. You meet a woman who has an issue of blood, and she comes to find Jesus, and the bleeding stops. You meet a man who is possessed by demons. Jesus comes to him, and now the demons flee. Right? Have you caught that? That it's, it's the same story. Just change the characters and change the situation, but it feels so redundant. And then it hit me, right? You know what you never see in Mark's gospel? You never ever, from Mark chapter 1 all the way up to Mark chapter 8, you never find someone. Mark, you won't see it. It does not read, so-and-so had it all together. And both of his hands were working, and his family was healthy and wealthy and wise, and his marriage was really, really good, and his kids were obedient whenever you saw them, and they met Jesus, and Jesus rubber-stamped them, and they got faith. It's not in Mark's gospel. And so we have to ask, Mark, why are you telling us the same thing over and over and over and over again that these people are suffering and hurting and aching and somehow when they come to Jesus, they're made whole? I think what Mark is saying is you don't come to Jesus without hardship. And what usually happens, right, in Mark's gospel is you have something over here that's aching and hurting and paining you, 
and you try to fix it and you can't fix it. And then you search over here and you search over here and you search over here. And then you realize I can't fix it. And then you go through this, this, this posture of being humbled, right? And that's exactly what happens. This woman comes to Jesus in humility. Mark actually says she came to Jesus and she begged him. Look at verse 25. And she fell down at his feet and she begged him. And in Matthew's account, she keeps on begging him. And then guess, look at the interaction, which I'm going to get to a little later. But she is not greeted with what I would like to see in the Bible. But I don't write the Bible. I just try to teach it. And so we got to deal with it. Look at verse 27. And notice how Jesus responds to her. Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She is actually calling this woman a dog. Now, scholars try to soften it by saying, well, he's using a word for a little puppy. <laughs> and I'm just like, bruh, it's still subhuman, right? It's a dog. I mean, and it's offensive. And we'll get into the offense of this a little later, but I have a sneaking suspicion based on her response. Did you catch her response? This will be fighting words for some of y'all women in the room, right? You come to Jesus, he call you a dog, we taking the earrings off, we, we, about, we about to go to blows, how dare you call me out of my name, right? But Mark has no reason to, to deceive us. He doesn't say the woman reacted like this because she didn't react like this. Because whenever people have bad things to say about Jesus, Mark writes it. When they accuse Jesus of being possessed by Satan, Mark writes it. When the Pharisees have these issues, Mark writes it. And so when he does not write that, that she kind of got all into her feelings, we can trust Mark that maybe she didn't get all in her feelings. And look at her response. Her response is in verse 29, but she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. What's going on right there? That's humility. She's, Jesus is working humility in her. Now, why would this be so important? Because she's from Tyre and Sidon. And all the judgments against those two cities, you want to know what's always attached to the judgment? their pride. You think you're beautiful and you think you're fortified and you think you're wealthy and you think you're God. Isn't it like Jesus in his goodness who is entertaining a woman from the land of the land and to bring her to a place of humility? And then did you notice how she got there? This is the third component. So the first component of, of faith is suffering. The second component is, is humility. And the third piece is knowledge. Look at verse 25 carefully. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit, she heard of him. And then she came and fell down at his feet. So did, did you catch that? She heard about Jesus. Doesn't the Bible say faith comes by 
hearing and hearing the word of God. And so somehow this loop was open in Mark chapter 3, where Mark told us this great crowd followed Jesus from Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, as far as the Jordan, as far as Tyre and Sidon. That was back in Mark 3. And now you see that some of those people who were in that first crowd in Mark 3, some of them have gone back to this land and they are gossiping about Jesus. And somehow on this particular day, when this woman comes to the end of herself and has a need, somebody, it could have been a cousin, it could have been a friend, it could have been a, I don't know who it is, but somebody talked to her about Jesus. And notice how this works. There's a problem, her daughter, and she can't fix it. There's a path towards humility And there's an awareness, a knowledge of Jesus that these three things are crucial when it comes to either becoming believers or growing in our faith. And here is why they're surprising. Because I can pray and ask God for stronger faith. But you know what I usually want? I don't want to suffer to get there. And I definitely don't want you to out me and humble me. And I want it to be so emotional that maybe I can conjure it up myself and not need to root myself back in your word. This is pushing against the way that we all think about how we grow in faith. We tend to think that faith is emotional and I'm going to name it and claim it and make it happen. And I don't have to suffer to get there. And that is not how Jesus saves or grows his people. How many times have you asked and welcomed a little suffering to believe the gospel more? How many times have you asked for a little humility to grow more? This is an upside down kingdom and therefore it is surprising. And here's the beauty of it. Occasionally my wife bakes and sometimes she'll say, babe, can you look up this recipe or this recipe? And she'll, or she'll bring a recipe to me. And I'm like, babe, we don't need no more cakes, right? But we'll, I'll get out there and, and we'll search cakes. And occasionally, right, you come across a chocolate cake. Why I got to put baking powder, which is nasty by itself in it? Why do we have to put buttermilk, which is nasty by itself? There, there are like cottage cheese pound cakes out there. Go look it up. And here's the thing. You can take these nasty, bitter things, and when you mix it with something sweet like eggs and sugar and butter and and you put it in an oven, you get this cake that is like moist and delightful and decadent, right? But here's the thing. You cannot get the good tasting cake without the bitter ingredients a part of it. And see, some of us want to grow in faith but we don't want the bitter ingredients that come with it. I'm speaking for myself at least. What is it that causes your heart to ache this morning, Redeemer? What is it that you worry about? What is it that makes you afraid? 
Could it be that Jesus is trying to transform your trust from you to him? And the way he's going to do that is by hardship and humility and your knowledge of God's word. And he somehow mixes this all together by his spirit to surprise you with something sweet and beautiful that you could get no other way. That's the reason we confess sin, because we really believe we're real sinners. It's the reason we cry tears. It's the reason we ache and confess sins and talk about the things that hurt us it's because we're enacting this same process you see in Mark's gospel. It's the reason we open up the scripture and we come back to it time and time and time again. This is how God redeems and saves and builds up his people. The third thing we see is a surprising foundation of faith. I want to go back to that interaction between Jesus and the woman. And he calls, he says, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Well, who's children? And Jesus uses this phrase several times. He uses it before the cross. He says to his disciples, after the resurrection, he comes to them and says, children, uh, do you have any fish? Before the cross, he tells the disciples, little children, when I'm with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, I say to you that where I'm going, you cannot come. And, and later on in, in Luke 13, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, how I would love to gather your children together as a hand gathers her brood under her wings, but you are not willing. In other words, when Jesus uses that phrase, children, it can mean the disciples, and it can mean Israel. And so lay this idea on top of what's happening. See, we believe Jesus is in Tyre and Sidon with his disciples. And then a Gentile comes in. Maybe Jesus is in the midst of teaching, and a Gentile woman comes in. And notice what he says, it's not meant for you Gentile to interrupt me teaching my children. Now, that's kind of hard to hear, right? Because some of you love your pets way too much, right? <laughs> you let them eat off the table and, and you make their dog food. No, I'm just playing, this is a joke, right? But not, not in Jesus' day, right? There was kind of this pecking order, mother, father, kids. And very few would keep dogs as pets, right? But notice what Jesus is saying. There is a priority, and the priority here is children, children of Israel, my disciples. But did you catch what Mark says? Jesus entered the house and apparently did not want anyone to know. In Matthew's account, Jesus enters the house and this woman shows up, and Jesus is just silent. And here's what I think is happening. I think something beautiful is happening in this room. 
I think one of the reasons Jesus might be silent is because I don't think his humanity is fully aware of what's happening. You see, Jesus was born a Jew, circumcised a Jew, went to the temple. Jesus knew the scriptures that salvation was for the Jews. Jesus knew God's preferred love for the people of Israel. Jesus knew that, oh, Israel, oh, Israel, of all the nations on the earth, it is you that I have set my affection upon. And it's not because you're powerful. It's not because you're mighty. It is because I love you. Jesus is aware of this Jewish thrust of the entire Old Testament. And so in this moment, he, I, I think he's paralyzed because he sees, and I think Jesus also knows that when I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. And so you have Jesus kind of caught between this rock and this hard place, right? He knows God's covenant loyalty for Israel, and he knows that it's not until I die and go into a ground and am resurrected and the Spirit is poured out upon my disciples that they will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And what you have the Father and the Spirit doing, I think, in this passage, he says, oh, no, Jesus, you don't have to wait to see the nations redeemed. You're going to get a glimpse of the nations coming to you right here and right now. And so when Jesus has this dialogue with this woman, do you know what the disciples wanted him to do to her? In Matthew's account, they actually say, push her away, send her away. I mean, they actually tell him, get her out of here. And you know what this woman wants to do? She wants to come in and bombard and stop the party. And you know who Jesus sides with? Neither. You catch that? He does not march to the drumbeat of the disciples by pushing her away, and neither does he march to the drumbeat of this woman by letting her usurp Israel. He's doing both. He is marching to the drumbeat of the scriptures. And isn't it like God in a book like Isaiah, verse chapter 23, listen to what God says about Tyre and Sidon. You get the judgment and guess what you get at the end of it? At the end of 70 years, the Lord will revive Tyre. She will start making money again by selling her services to all the earth's kingdoms. Her profits and earnings will be set apart for the Lord. They will not be stored up or accumulated, for her profits will be given to those who live in the Lord's presence and will be used to purchase large quantities of food and beautiful clothing. Do you hear? Jesus sees both judgment and mercy. And what beat does he march to in this meeting? The drum beat of God's word. I will not treat you like the disciples want you to be treated. And neither would I let you undermine the flow of scripture. There is an A side of salvation that says salvation is for the Jews 
and there is a B-side to salvation, that salvation is for the Jews and through the Jews to the end of the earth. And the Lord will do them both. Now, I don't know about you, but I actually think this is the good news in the passage. Jesus is marching to the beat of God's word. He is not detracted by what people want, what people want him to be. He takes his orders from the king of heaven. And like Nipsey Hussle say, he going to stick to the script. And the script is God's word. Salvation is to the Jew and from the Jew to the ends of the earth. Your Lord, your King, your Savior, he is the foundation, the anchor of our faith. We look at him and we trust. You will trust and you will do every single thing commanded in Scripture, even if it means saying something hard to a woman, even if it means rebuking your disciples. You will not be detracted. You will not be distracted. You will not be off course. You will obey and you will keep the entirety of God's law. And therefore, my faith and my hope is anchored not in me and not in what I feel, but it's in you, the one and true faithful one. Amen. That's the anchor. That's the foundation of faith. It's not you and me. It's him. And you see him showing it in the passage. Which leads us to our final point. What's the surprising result of faith? There are two miracles in this passage. The first one is obvious. It's the little girl. Which, when you read this account, it's unlike the other ones. Did you catch that Jesus didn't even need to go to the house to heal her? He told the woman, when she made this declaration of faith, he says, because of this statement, your daughter is now healed. And when the woman leaves Jesus and goes to her home, she actually finds her daughter on the bed and the demon has fleed, fled. Who is this who can just speak it from way over here? And it happens like way over there. Like, like who is this? What is this? And, and Mark is saying, this is the Lord. This is the one mighty in battle, the Lord who with his own words, right, created everything we see and don't see. This is the same person right here who is speaking healing over this girl, and he does not have to physically be there to do it. That's a miracle. But did you catch the other miracle? This woman came in that room as a dog, and she left that day as a daughter. That's a miracle. Now, how do we know Jesus is treating her as his daughter? He's hearing her prayers. He's accepting her worship. He cares about what she cares about. Did you think about that? That Jesus never met the little girl personally, at least in this account. But what we do know that because the little girl mattered to the mom, the little girl now matters to Jesus. 
Isn't that good news? See, I think we think about faith and we think and bend towards this idea that God's ambition to save me is to, 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 to save my soul and to redeem me and then to bring me with him to glory forever. And, and that is true. But what's also true about faith in this passage is that there is a collateral blessing. And here's what I mean. When we think about collateral damage, if I bomb this chair, right, then everything around the chair is also damaged, even though my target was the chair. It works its way in the military. You can take out this airport with a bomb or a missile, and yes, you destroy the airport, but you also destroy the periphery. It's called collateral damage. What you see working in this passage is collateral blessing. Jesus is saving the mother and the daughter who's way back here, she gets healed. Isn't that like God who says, I want to be a God to you and your children after you? Isn't this like God to say that there is an aspect to our personal faith when when we trust and, 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 and follow the risen king that he puts this aspect of I want to redeem and touch and care about the things that you desire and love. The things that you desire and love, they're now my concerns. I care about not just you, but the things you care about as well, even your own children. So here's what it means. It means that if you are a born-again believer and your marriage is hard, do you believe that Jesus cares about your spouse? And your children are lost. Do you believe that Jesus cares about your children? And you're having a hard time finding employment. Do you think Jesus cares about your employment? And you're having a hard time in school. Do you think Jesus also cares about your school? Beloved, this passage says he doesn't just care about you. He also cares about the things that you care about. And that is good news. And so my desire for us, Redeemer, is that we would indeed be surprised by faith. And that faith would be a good surprise to us. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We bless you. We thank you for your word. And as we turn our hearts to the supper, we ask that you would indeed, by faith and your grace, apply the truth of it to our hearts. Jesus, we pray for those who are aching over certain things in their lives and world. I ask, oh God, that we would walk that path of humility, ultimately bringing these things to you and entrusting them to you. And in the meantime, worshiping and rejoicing and loving you by faith, would you do this for your glory and your honor in Christ's name? Amen.